Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, and Damon Linker, author of Eyes on the Right for Substack. And Linda Chavez is out this week. Sitting in for her is John Ward of Yahoo News. We appreciate that. And our special guest this week is Tom Nichols, Professor Emeritus at the Naval War College and a contributor to The Atlantic. Welcome, one and all. By the time people hear this podcast, they will, many of them, have already seen the last of the scheduled televised hearings from the January 6th committee, focusing on uh, what Trump was doing while his enraged followers were trashing the Capitol and attacking police. Now, this was originally supposed to mark the end of the public hearings, but the committee has said that it's receiving so much new information that it may well return for further public hearings at a later date. And um, so there are many questions that are still hanging whether Trump will be indicted, whether Trump will declare his candidacy for president, perhaps to foreclose indictment, and whether the hearings are actually making a difference. So there was an article this week in Politico that suggested that the accumulation is making a difference. I'm going to start with you, Bill Galston. You study polling very closely Is it your sense that these hearings are having some sort of an effect at eroding Trump's grip on the GOP? Yes, that is my sense, Mona. And if you just connect a sequence of surveys with a lot of qualitative and anecdotal information, it's hard to avoid the conclusion that Republicans are beginning to think twice about the wisdom of nominating Donald Trump for the third presidential election in a row. One survey, of course, that caught people's attention was the Times-Siena survey, which could not have been worse news for Joe Biden and the Biden administration, except for the kicker at the end. For all of the dramatic weaknesses that the Times poll revealed for President Biden, it still showed him beating former President Trump by three percentage points, 44 to 41. And uh, if you put those findings together, it's hard for me to avoid the conclusion that Republicans are beginning to look around for people who will give them what they like about Donald Trump without the aspects of Donald Trump that make them really nervous about the outcome of the 2024 election. And I would say that Florida Governor DeSantis fills that bill to a T, and he can just sit there in Florida and do what he's doing. And my hunch is that unless he makes a major mistake, he will get stronger and stronger as the rest of the year proceeds. Tom Nichols, one thing that DeSantis can't do, unless I'm mistaken, is declare early because he is on the ballot 
in Florida, and he can't very well announce for president until he's reelected, whereas, uh, presumably be reelected, whereas Trump can jump in at any time. What do you make of this? I mean, are we putting too much stock? Look, here was the Siena poll. New York Times, Siena, who do Republicans back in 2024? 49% wanted Trump, 25% said DeSantis. There was also a New Hampshire poll that showed DeSantis pulling almost close to Trump, so maybe that's significant. I don't know. What do you think? Well, for one thing, DeSantis doesn't have to um, announce when you have National Review and all of the conservative press behind you. You've already announced. In that sense, you know, he's already being anointed as the Republican frontrunner. Not always a great place to be as Jeb exclamation point Mm -hmm. can tell Mm -hmm. you. But, you know, the polls, I guess I'm more pessimistic about those polls because long experience, both as a Republican and with Republicans, says that Republicans will say a lot of things before they have a nominee, but then they come home. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they convince themselves to say, oh, you know, I really didn't want this guy. I really wish it had been somebody else. But Joe Biden, you know, or whoever the Democratic nominee is, is a communist and hates puppies and children and all living things. And so I just have to do this. And I think Republicans, particularly in the past few years, have become really adept at convincing themselves of this. I mean, you even see it with that kind of grumpy Bill Barr interview saying, oh. well, you know, I, uh, you know, Trump's a terrible person and he's delusional and he's lost such a butt, you know, uh, I guess the Democrats are such a threat to humanity that if he was a nominee, I, 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 I. Yeah. you know, yeah. I mean, come on. I know. I know. By the way, um, Rusty Bowers, when he was asked whether he would support Trump in 2024 and initially he said yes, and it, it was like a dagger to my heart. Um, mm-hmm. Although I'm so used to it at this point that they kind of bounce off. But he has walked that back. I don't know if you noticed that. I just thought I'd say that for the record. He he now he says. Did. Yeah. He walked it back and he said, look, I don't know what I would do. I, you know, I'm, and God bless him. He was a hell of a lot more honest than old school Washington Pauls like Bill Barr. Yeah. You know, Bowers in this kind of almost affectingly guileless moment said, look, you know, it's just my reflex to say that, of course, I'm going to support the nominee. That's not who I am. I'm a Republican. When someone tells me we have a nominee, I say, of course, I'm going to support him, but I don't really know what I would do in this case. And I felt a little stampeded. So I kind of blurted this thing out. But again, inside the beltway, even with people that should know better, And I think this is true in a lot of Republican establishments around the country that people say, yes, terrible Trump. Glad that's over. Oh, he's the nominee. Well, I guess I got to go there again. So these hearings, I mean, according to Sarah Longwell's focus groups, where she talks with, you know, a couple groups of various voters on a weekly basis. And she says, and I'm going to turn to you on this, Damon. She says that after the hearings got going, and for the first time, I guess, last week, I think, when she got a group of Trump voters together, not a single one raised their hands when she asked if they would vote for him or if they wanted him to run. I can't remember the exact question. In 2024, and she said up until then, up until the hearings, it had always been about 
50% of the focus group members. Now, these are small numbers of people, and that's why it's totally unscientific. It's anecdotal. So should we, as good political scientists, should we ignore the focus groups or should we pay attention? What do you think? Well, it's one small data point. It's interesting. It's a little hopeful, but I'm more with Tom on this than Bill, I think. Now, I'm not even sure how far Bill was really going with saying that there is some signs that Trump's support is softening. I think that it is undeniably true. There is some evidence of this, but fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, three times, four times, shame on me. I mean, I, my, my least favorite slash favorite anecdote from the last six years that I almost can't believe every time I bring it up, because I'm almost reminding myself of it, it's so shocking from where I'm coming from, the fact that 11 million more Americans voted for Trump in 2020 than voted for him in 2016. That means that 11 million people said, no way, Trump, in 2016, watched the next four years, and then said, you know, on second thought, I'm actually going to go for that guy. In a country where that can happen, I won't believe it till I see it which again is upsetting because I would love to believe he's fading. But look, on the other side, the more grumpy side of the ledger from some of the more recent polling, you also have that Times Siena poll that says that Trump is currently polling at about 49% in an imaginary GOP primary right now with DeSantis at 25. That means that Trump is almost effectively lapping DeSantis. And then below DeSantis, no one breaks out of single digits. So it's really right now a two-man race, and it's a two-man race in which Trump is doubling the runner-up. Now, it is early. Lots of Americans probably don't know much about Ron DeSantis at all. So there's a name recognition gap there. I do think that the hearings are making Trump look atrocious, and this could be having an effect. But it's a long way off until those primaries begin. Trump is now talking about dangling the possibility of leaping into and declaring as early as September before the midterms. I think he'd be an idiot to do that. He really should wait until after the vote because if he announces in September and then the midterms actually go south on the Republicans, which they could based on current polling, there are going to be a lot of people who might blame him for that. And that could weaken him going into 2024. But if he announces shortly after the midterms, he gets his Twitter account back. He's suddenly present in the news, constantly attacking Biden, attacking the Democrats, defending himself. I think, I mean, we're still looking at polling, despite everything else, of a lot of Republicans still thinking that Trump won and it was stolen from him. All of that is going to get reactivated. And again, maybe this is all PTSD. It very well could be that. But hell, that's where I'm thinking from these days. And I am not willing to let my guard down for one second about what might be coming in two years. So John Ward, following up on Damon's point, I was going to ask you the same thing, which is, this is all taking place in a sense, in a vacuum. That is, we're only hearing the prosecution's case against Trump in these hearings, and Trump hasn't really had a platform to defend himself. And 
let's put it this way. Though it doesn't make any sense to some of us, Trump is very persuasive to many Americans. And when he begins to mock the Democrats, when he begins to deny it all, when he hurls invective, it could change things. So what's your sense of that? Well, I think the scenario Damon just laid out is highly plausible in terms of him declaring if he's smart right after the midterm elections. And then Damon made the very smart point to talk about him getting his Twitter account back. You know, I think at that point, anyone who's a Republican who wants to run for president in 2024 faces a choice because up until now, it's been possible to avoid head-to-head confrontation with Trump. Mike Pence has done this I think pretty well, where he can pull a a Brian Kemp, Mike Pence can, because he has already stood up to Donald Trump when it counted the most. And so he can kind of deflect, make slight confrontational statements that provide a contrast, but then focus on bolstering his conservative credentials with the base. But if it comes to a place where Trump is starting to maybe pull ahead or, or establish himself once again, I think that presents Pence and DeSantis and others with a real challenge of how to navigate that. Because if there's anything I've taken away from watching the difference between Brian Kemp's success versus Trump and Liz Cheney's, you know, maybe she'll pull out her election, but so far it doesn't look good. And it seems like the more you confront Trump directly and sort of make his supporters feel in any way embarrassed, ashamed, It seems like that really kind of backs them into a corner and increases their support for him. Whereas Kemp was able to, again, like Pence, sort of avoid the head-to-head confrontation and point to his conservative accomplishments. So I think at that point, the one that Damon laid out, I'm not sure what the playbook is and if it's possible for those conservatives to navigate that in a way that allows them to pull ahead. But that's why you play the game. Bill, you wanted to add something. Just that. The question I was asked was, is there evidence that Trump's hold over the Republican Party is weakening? The answer to that question, I think, is probably yes. That is distinct from the question of whether when it comes down to it, he'll get the nomination. And certainly further distinguished from the question of whether Republican voters will come home to support him if he is the nominee. And I think the answer to that question is almost certainly yes. So that's point number one. The answer depends on what the question is. Point number two is that primaries are a sequential process. And how you do at the beginning has an enormous impact on how you end up doing. And so the poll that actually didn't put DeSantis close to Trump in New Hampshire, but actually in the lead in New Hampshire was, I think, of particular importance because it suggests that under the appropriate conditions, someone not named Donald Trump could come out first in New Hampshire. And as someone working for Walter Mondale in 1984, I can tell you that that can be a game changer and it can turn you know, a near certain nomination into a death struggle. So, there is just an enormous amount of time and lots and lots of different bounces of the ball. No responsible person at this point could predict with any confidence what's going to happen. But if you're asking me what the direction of movement is, 
there I think the evidence is mounting against Trump. Okay, Tom, I want to ask you about something related but different, which is there's been a lot of condemnation of the Democratic Party, including on this podcast, for backing Trumpy candidates in the primaries. Governor Pritzker did this in Illinois, and of course, most famously, Shapiro, the Democratic nominee for governor in Pennsylvania, did it with uh, Mastriano, who is a um, not only an election denier, but somebody who says he would send a an alternate slate of delegates, and it is an important swing state, Pennsylvania, and so on. So my colleague, Jonathan Lass, says, no, people are making too much of this. You know, the fact is the ads that they ran sort of for these these Trumpy candidates are the same ones that they would use in a general to run against them. So, but there are a couple of other arguments out there, and I'm curious what you think. I mean, one of the arguments is that if your preferred Trumpy extremist GOP opponent loses their primary, you've just spent your money boosting the moderate credentials of the person you're now going to be facing. So what do you make of that, for one thing? I think in a normal time, in the before times, right, Mm -hmm. where we could say, let's try and help pick the opponent like Claire McCaskill did with Todd Akin. Mm -hmm. Let's see if we can just kind of push the dumbest, weakest guy out there. That's not a new idea in politics, and it's been something that both parties over the years have done. I think in these times where you are talking about people who are existentially dangerous to our constitution and to our elections, I think it is an absolutely insane thing to do because it's the Democrats saying, we will take a choice on someone who will literally destroy the constitution rather than risk being defeated by a garden variety moderate from the other party. And I think that's irresponsible. I think if you want to win elections, you go out there and you make your case. In a normal year where the country is not under this kind of level of threat, you might be able to excuse some, I don't even, I don't, what do we call it? You know, chicanery or mm-hmm. franking or, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, the usual kind of election hijinks right, where you right. say, hey, other party, why don't you elect the dumbest, weakest possible candidate <laughs> you can put out there? The problem is that you can do that in those times and say, and if it backfires, okay, so you get a bad senator, but it's not the end of the world. But if it backfires in a place like Pennsylvania, you literally could throw the entire American electoral system into chaos. Yep. This is, you know, the gong that I bang regularly, but this indicates a lack of seriousness. It indicates a a lack, particularly among, as I refer to them, my coalition partners to the left, of um, an understanding that this isn't just another election, that this is an existential crisis and has been for at least four or five years now. And the Democrats better start acting like that. Yeah. Damon. Yeah. The only thing I wanted to add to that, which I I agree with everything Tom said, is that for me, the worst part of this for the Democrats is not so much that, you know, Mastriano won because of Shapiro's ads. That isn't true. He was already up by quite a lot and he won by a lot. The bigger problem is that it undermines the Democrats' own argument about exactly what Tom was saying, that the message 
is, and it is true that these candidates are beyond the pale. They are a kind of radioactive toxin to American democracy and the Constitution and our electoral system, and they they must not be allowed to win, not just because I'm a Democrat and that's a Republican and I don't like them, but because they are in a different category from a normal politician and are therefore off limits. If that is the case, it cannot be okay to play these kinds of hijinks by boosting them up in the hope that they'll win and then we'll beat them by more. You know, right now, Shapiro in Pennsylvania is approximately three to four points behind Mastriano. And in a big wave election, that could easily be enough to flip it so that Mastriano ends up becoming the governor of my own state, which is a pretty horrifying prospect. So, So shame on the Democrats for doing that. Yes. And you mentioned a wave election. I mean, the fact is, we don't know what will happen in November. We don't know how, you know, Roe v. Wade being overturned is going to affect turnout. There are a lot of things that are still uncertain, but we do know it's likely to be a tough year for Democrats. And so particularly when inflation is at 9.1%, it is really playing with fire to say, let's just roll the dice and let some lunatic get the nomination for the other side. I mean, we've seen how this story ends. Democrats were thrilled to have Trump as the nominee in 2016. So, John, I want to come back to you, though, on this question about where the Republican Party is. So there have been a few victories in these primaries so far for non-Trumpy candidates. We've already mentioned Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensperger. You know, he's another one who survived a, a Trump attempt, a sabotage attempt. There have also been a number of prominent Republicans, including Mike Pence and Pompeo and others, Chris Christie, who have supported candidates other than the Trump-supported candidates in some of these primaries. So that's possibly a sign. On the other hand, if you want to see what the Trumpification of the Republican Party looks like, look over to Maryland, which has a history of nominating moderate Republicans for very good reason. It's a super blue state. And uh, maybe that's part of it. Maybe conservative voters in very blue states figure they don't have to be responsible because they know they're not going to win. But they did win with Larry Hogan. Larry Hogan had a terrific eight years as governor, one of the most popular governors in the country. And Maryland Republicans have now chosen to nominate for Hogan's successor, not the person that Hogan was backing, very reasonable, sort of traditional Republican, but a QAnon lunatic named Dan Cox. So I just like your reaction. What's your sense of how it's going in terms of nominations so far? Well, in terms of Maryland, I think Larry Hogan has governed for the state of Maryland, not for the tens of thousands of Republican voters that nominated Cox for the governor's race. So as a result of him governing for all of the constituents of his state, you know, I think the base of the Republican Party there has kind of radicalized in part because of Trump. And, you know, I, I know a lot of people from Maryland, so I've seen sort of firsthand this thing where Hogan is seen by them as, you know, because he supported uh, measures during COVID that were more in favor with Democrats. And because he called out Trump on his big lie, you know, a lot of those hardcore Trump supporters just sort of Hogan became anathema to them. So 
I don't see any indication that Cox has any real chance at winning, but you know, I think if there's any, if there's any through line to this entire conversation, it's that the before times, as Tom called it, you could make predictions with a little more confidence. So I think everybody's a little concerned about that, but I don't think there's a lot of reason to be. In terms of the nominations you mentioned, Pence picking people he's just this week, I think, got involved in Arizona, where he's backed the challenger to Trump's candidate, Kerry Lake. And so that's another opportunity for Pence to show that he can take Trump on directly and win. And he needs to do that because he's tried to avoid unnecessary head-to-head confrontations, but he definitely needs those, those kind of contrasts to show strength, especially as time winds down. So, you know, I don't know. I think the general consensus is that it's been a mixed bag for Trump. You know, I think it was really important for him to win in Ohio. He came in late there with J.D. Vance, and I think that helped him avoid a storyline of just successive losses because he did have a few, but that Vance win, I think, was important for him to kind of inoculate himself from being seen as really, really weak. By the way, Carrie Lake, just, you know, a few little fun facts about her. As a former TV host, she has led anti-mask rallies. She supported Barack Obama, voted for him, was a Democrat, became a Republican, then Democrat. I don't know. She's been a few different things. But now she is full MAGA, and she says that it is, quote, disqualifying and sickening unquote, that her rival will not say that the 2020 election was fraudulent. And of course, she has the strong support of the kind of people that have come to characterize the Trump Republican Party. Paul Gosar, Joe Arpaio, Mike Lindell, that's the pillow guy, Rudy Giuliani, Michael Flynn, and of course, Marjorie Taylor Greene. You know, you kind of you want to weep because Arizona used to produce politicians like John McCain and John Kyle and Jeff Flake. But there we are. So we'll see. This Rob Robson is the rival for the GOP nomination, and we will see. She does have support from Doug Ducey, the outgoing governor, and uh, as you mentioned, from Pence. So that will be one to watch. All right. With that, we will turn to some other topics. I would like to begin with you again, John Ward, because this week, after a long wait, a bipartisan group of senators has finally, finally produced a proposal to reform the Electoral Count Act. So tell us what you think of this proposed reform. You might want to give a quick precis about why this is important. There's a guy named Matthew Seligman, S-E-L-I-G-M-A-N who I think has been the best expert on this. And if people want to really do a deep dive on the Electoral Count Act, I would just go to his Twitter account because he has great layman's explanations of the real crucial issues here. But basically, it became clear, I think, to a lot of people early 2021 that the threat to democracy next time would come not in the form of a mob, but in the form of chicanery at the state level, either by state legislatures or by rogue governors. And so the Electoral Count Act started out, I think, around a discussion about clarifying the role of the vice president when counting the electors on January 6th after the most recent election. But I think what became the focus, and Seligman, has, I think, has been helpful and important for me in understanding this, is that the way that the Electoral Count Act is written leaves a lot of loopholes and vulnerabilities for rogue actors at the state level 
to submit slates of alternate electors to Congress, and then that would cause just massive, massive chaos. So what the ECA, the proposed legislation does is impose a regime of judicial review, where basically the federal courts are going to have a lot of say-so over whether or not the electors that are sent from the state are legitimate or not. And so they would have the ability to, if they saw a governor or a legislature submitting basically fake electors like Trump people tried to do in 2020, the, the federal courts would have the power to shut that down, whereas right now they do not. So that's, I think, the most crucial aspect of it. They are also clarifying the role of the vice president, and they're increasing the threshold that's required for objections to the results to spark debate in the House when the electors are being certified. But I think it's that state-level rogue actor issue that's the most crucial to fix, because we mentioned Mastriano earlier. If he were to submit that alternate slate, I believe that this legislation would make it much harder for that to succeed. Yeah, unless, and I invite anybody who would like to comment on this to please do so, but there are nine Republican senators who've already signed on to this proposal. They just need one more to get to 60. So that's encouraging. But what's a little bit of a cloud is that the Supreme Court has agreed to hear a case about the independent state legislature doctrine, which could potentially throw this into some confusion. Does anybody want to comment on that? If not, we'll move on. I'll just say that the Supreme Court is, for all of the talk about a conservative Supreme Court that is, um, you know, simply returning things to the states, I think this is a pretty radical Supreme Court and has its own agenda in a way that I haven't seen in my lifetime. And taking on that legislative supremacy case was even more than Dobbs or anything else. It was really just firing a flare that said, there are things we want done in this country. I've said that all bad things are going to be announced in this society with the phrase, in a six to three decision. (laughs) Mona. Yeah. I've not done a deep dive on that issue in terms of the Supreme Court case you mentioned, but I have seen some of the experts like Rick Hassan and this guy, Matt Seligman, saying that the ECA reform is the main focus here and that they're not as concerned about the case you mentioned as they are about the need for the ECA reform bill to pass. Right. Okay. Well, let us hope. Oh, Bill, did you have a comment about the ECA reform before we turn to something else? Just very quickly, quietly, while nobody has really been focusing on it, this highly polarized 117th Congress is racking up a significant record of bipartisan achievement. You know, there was the infrastructure bill, the gun bill, the emerging agreement on the CHIPS Act, and now quite possibly a reform of the Electoral Count Act. Those four things were to happen. I think that there will be a very interesting storyline that goes exactly contrary to the standard narrative about the current situation of the Congress of the United States. Yeah, the standard narrative, Bill, that's popular on both sides, right? I mean, you know, a lot of people scorned Biden when he said he could get bipartisan agreement to things, right? A lot of Democrats and and certainly a lot of Republicans think that compromise is treason. So let me stay with you, Bill Galston. You wrote about Ukraine this week. 
just as we don't know what's going to happen uh, with the January 6th committees and many other things, we don't know who's going to win this war, which is an amazing thing to say, isn't it? That when you consider the way things looked on February 24th, that if you would have asked whether we would be in the middle of July, late July, and still be not sure who's going to win, nobody would have thought that, right? So how do you think things are going and What's the significance of the HIMARS? And tell us what a HIMAR is. Well, the HIMARS is the most advanced and sophisticated multiple rocket launcher in the U.S. arsenal. And what's particularly significant about this system is that it has a range of about twice that of the second best system. We've already sent, I believe, 12 in one way or another The Defense Secretary, Lloyd Austin, promised another four just yesterday. And it turns out that the Ukrainians are very quick learners when it comes to advanced weaponry, in part, I suppose, reflecting the fact that it's a pretty educated society, in part, the fact that NATO has actually been training large numbers of Ukrainian soldiers since 2014, and they've developed a strength which the Russians have never had, and that is a non-commissioned officer corps that's capable of leading flexible offensive and defensive operations on the ground. The HIMARS is the closest thing to a game changer that we've seen so far because it has permitted the Ukrainians to attack Russians far behind the front, and they are using the very expensive projectiles that HIMARS fires to attack two things above all. First of all, Russian ammunition depots, and they've blown up quite a few of them. And secondly, Russian command headquarters. And the situation apparently has gotten significant enough for Russia that the Russian defense minister, uh, Mr. Shoigu, on Monday said that the HIMARS system should be target number one for Russian artillery and Russian drones and Russian airstrikes. Uh, So this is working, and it has helped stabilize the front. It is one thing, and I've pointed this out repeatedly, it is one thing to stabilize a front. It's a very different thing to go on offense. The Ukrainians are determined to mount a counteroffensive before winter comes. They are unwilling to wait until next spring to do it on the grounds that the Russians are digging deeper in every day. And if they wait until next spring, it may be almost impossible to dislodge them. So the next three or four months could be critical. My argument is we don't know what's going to happen, but the Ukrainians deserve every possible chance to win this war. And we ought to do our part to make sure that they have that chance and that they have it not six months from now, but three weeks from now. So Tom Nichols, do you agree with Bill that we should be arming the Ukrainians so that they can win? Or do you take a more cautious approach? What's your view? It depends on what you mean by win, but I think we ought to be arming the Ukrainians quickly and in great numbers. I'm not sure. I mean, sometimes I try to cautious against the uh, military version of irrational exuberance about how the Ukrainians are going to take back every bit of territory that they've lost since 2014. On the other hand, 
they are capable of counteroffensives and they are taking back land that they've lost in this war and this iteration of the war. And I think we ought to help them with that. I have no patience with the, you know, realist arguments that, well, they should just accept that they've lost some land and they've got to sit down and they've got to negotiate. For one thing, the Russians have no interest in negotiating. Part of the problem that the people arguing for trying to slow down this war or hold back aid to the Ukrainians that they run into is that they assume that the Russians actually are interested in some kind of negotiation. And they're not. There's no evidence of it. I mean, Putin says, I'll negotiate if your starting position is to give me everything I want. <laughs> um, yes. you know, well, that, sure, you know, that makes it pretty easy to negotiate. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I agree with Bill. And I think that these systems are really having an effect because we have to think about what the Russian strategy is. The Russians, and I, it surprises me to say this after years of studying the Russian and Soviet military, but the Russians are really, really bad at this, even worse than those of us who studied them would have thought they are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this was never the most competent military in the world, but that they would be this staggeringly stupid and incompetent is really a revelation. And so their strategy now is to simply reduce the areas that their artillery can reach, reduce those areas to rubble, go stand in the rubble, plant a flag and say, we are gaining ground. Yep. Which doesn't mean very much. They can't really hold it. There's nothing there that's worth holding. I mean, part of the thing I think people need to understand about a military advance is that when you advance and hold ground, you actually get something. You can stay there. You can drink the water. You can set up a base. Mm -hmm. And this ability to fire back at those long-range artillery fires is really screwing that up for the Russians. And I think that that's, you know, worth doing. So one other question, though, about the staying power of both sides. So the energy situation is really going to be dire in it's already, you know, exacting a price from the whole world in higher energy costs. The war is, I mean, and Germany in particular is highly, highly dependent on the Russians. And then there's the other fact that we have imposed what we hope are very severe sanctions on the Russian economy, but they may take time to come into full effect, the lack of spare parts and so forth. It has already arguably weakened their ability to produce trucks and cars and things, which is important, and maybe even tanks, but it takes a long time for those things to come into effect, whereas winter is coming soon. That we know for sure. So what's your sense of the staying power of each side? I think actually winter is going to be tougher on the Russians. The energy problem is kind of a Russian ace in the hole, right? That you can choke off gas and oil and so on. The problem is that gas and oil has to go somewhere. The Russians have to do something with it. But from a military point of view, to be the defender in your own country along internal lines of communication with nothing but allies along your Western border is a reasonably good situation to be in when you're hunkering down. What the Russians are going to have to do is keep cycling troops in and out of these tough forward positions in bitterly cold weather. And I think one thing that we haven't talked about enough, I mean, we in the West haven't talked about enough, is that a lot of these Russian troops that are being sent there 
they're not Russians. They're not ethnically Russians. They're going out and they're getting um, kids from the boondocks and some of the non-Russian areas of the Russian Federation and sending them off to the Ukrainian border. And that's hard enough to do under the best conditions. But when a Central European winter sets in, that's going to be a lot more difficult. The Russians outnumber the Ukrainians, but in every situation like this, the defender has a lot of natural advantages over the aggressor who has to take territory, has to maintain forward bases, has to feed and house troops and so on. So my guess is that Putin is dreading the onset of winter in some ways more than everybody else. Interesting. So uh, Shea Kateri writing in uh, The Bulwark this week noted that there are reports that Putin is actually going to use prisoners as soldiers, something that uh, is a very risky, risky move. Uh, they, they actually don't make the best combat troops, but he doesn't have too many good options because he refuses to call it a war. So he can't actually call up people. So he has his challenges too. All right. Damon, I want to turn to you on this. One of the most appalling revelations this week was about the Secret Service destroying all of these text messages, possibly, or claiming that they, oh, inadvertently deleted them in the process of a migration to a new system. Do you buy the Secret Service's explanation? <laughs> uh, well, uh, no. <laughs> I mean, I, it's not like I have any inside information, but it is a risable suggestion that the Secret Service, which uses pretty sophisticated software and technology in its work, doesn't know how to engage in a message migration without losing thousands of text messages. This is like ineptitude beyond the level of plausibility. And then the timeline involved here is also extremely suspicious. I mean, we had the January 6th insurrection and the events there. And just a few days after that, I believe 10 days later, on uh, January 16th, Congress officially requested that the Secret Service hold on to any data or information related to that event. So they, in addition to the normal legal requirements of document preservation, which sort of apply to all executive branch agencies, they made a special request, like especially don't get rid of these things. And then literally 11 days later, this migration supposedly happened where, oops, they all disappeared. This is extremely strange extremely suspicious. It's very troubling, especially because James Murray, who's the director of the Secret Service, was appointed by Trump. His name was apparently put forward by people very close to Trump who are in the Secret Service, especially uh, this uh, one guy named Tony, Tony uh, Ornato, who, mm -hmm. who is a former Secret Service agent who went to become deputy chief of staff for Trump. And Trump and wanted to- And now is back at the Secret Service. Right. And Trump wanted to nominate him to be the director of the Secret Service. And only when Ornato said, no, let me stay here and work for you, uh, still at the White House, then he said, but hire this other guy, James 
James Murray instead. And so Trump did that, and he's still in charge. So this is an extremely distressing set of facts, circumstances. There's other information over the last few days that has come out that makes it even odder, namely that the um, IG, uh, the uh, investigative arm within the Department of Homeland Security, where the Secret Service is housed, was apparently aware of these texts disappearing and stonewalling going on and was going to make an alert about this and inform Congress about it. And on two dates within the last year, it reversed itself and kept it secret. And the only reason we know that is because two whistleblowers have come out and talked to investigators and told them about it. So that raises the possibility that an even higher level in the federal bureaucracy, namely the boss of the boss of the Secret Service, service maybe was in on all of this. Again, all of this is speculatory. It sounds like I'm engaging in conspiracy theorizing, which I never like to do. All of that points to the need to really get to the bottom of a lot of this. We need a top to bottom investigation of Homeland Security and the Secret Service, and probably a lot of people are going to have to be fired. Uh, So this is a kind of unintended consequence of the January 6th committee hearings, which have been so explosive in many ways. All of this has come out, I think, without anyone realizing that it was another potential series of explosive allegations about Trump's tentacles leaving marks throughout the federal bureaucracy. So it's very disturbing. Yeah. And the case of Tony Ornato is illustrative. I mean, this is unprecedented that you would have a Secret Service member leave the agency, take a political job with the president, and then go back to the agency. That whole business was most irregular and does uh, raise a lot of questions. All right. By the way, Ornato denied Cassidy Hutchinson's claims during her testimony, immediately said he would testify to the contrary. That How many weeks has it been? I haven't noticed him going and standing under oath and doing that. So that's kind of revealing too. We are short on time, so we're going to go next to our highlights and lowlights of the week. Tom Nichols, I'll start with you. Highlight or lowlight of the week? You know, the problem is uh, they're both the same. I mean, um, the fact that the Secret Service that we were just talking about, that's a low light. The highlight is there is now a criminal probe, as there ought to be. I'm glad to see that, but I'm sad that the Secret Service, an institution Americans respect so greatly and think of so highly, is now under a criminal investigation. But I think that that says that the institutions are doing their job. Okay, thank you. John Ward. I think the ECA reform proposal is the highlight of the week for me. I'm a big believer in the importance of these structural reforms. I'm happy to see it's bipartisan. I've been hearing all along that the most likely outcome is that it passes in a lame duck, and I've been hearing that for months now. So we'll see if that comes to pass. Agree 100%. Uh, Not about the lame duck. I don't really know when it will pass or have any insight into that. But I think if it passes, as I desperately hope it will, it will be the most important thing this Congress has done and critical for the future of our country. Damon Linker. 
We're in a situation here with a couple of votes in the House this week that I can't really say are highlights or lowlights, but they certainly are something that should be highlighted. Very strange where, you know, because of the Dobbs decision eliminating constitutionally based abortion rights, Democrats have been understandably alarmed that what is going to come next are going to be a series of decisions from the high court that will uh, eliminate the right to privacy and other rights that have followed from that, including the right to uh, same sex marriage and contraception rights, which grow out of the original Griswold v. Connecticut decision that articulated privacy rights more generally. And this has led to some votes to codify these things in federal law. Now, they haven't gone to the Senate yet, so we don't know their fate yet. But the strange thing is about how the Republicans voted on these bills. Now, I think the more encouraging thing, although it is mixed, is that the vote to codify same-sex marriage drew the support of 47 Republicans in the House. Now, that left lots of Republicans to vote against it, but the fact that 47 of them would come over with the Democrats to support this is an encouraging sign. It's a reflection of the fact that in the polling, whereas Democrats support same-sex marriage, it's something like 85 or 86 percent. Even among Republican voters, it's now well north of 50 percent at around 55 percent. So this continues the real sea change that we've seen over the last generation on this issue. It is sort of strange that well over half of the House Republicans nevertheless still would not vote uh, in favor of this. But the fact that you got 47, I guess, is encouraging. But then the really, for me, peculiar and somewhat alarming result is that in the vote about whether to codify contraception rights, that passed the House only with 228 to 195, with only eight Republicans joining in support, which means that the overwhelming majority of House Republicans do not believe that contraception should be protected at the federal level, which I haven't seen polling on contraception lately. I Last I saw related to the Catholic Church, it was something like 97% support for legalized contraception yep. in this country. So it's like the most no-brainer-ish kind of vote you'd expect. And so the fact that only eight Republicans would go along with that, I think, is really eyebrow-raising and makes you wonder you know, whether people who are worried about what the court might do on this have something to be said for their concerns. So again, worth thinking about it. Translation, what the hell? Exactly. Like I, I, I almost, the fact that the contraception uh, vote came in so much lower than the same-sex marriage one really kind of blows me out of the water. I don't even know what to say about it exactly. Bizarre. Okay, Damon, I just want to add one quick footnote to yeah. your point, um, which is you're completely right that the contraception decision was also based on substantive due process, like the abortion decision. But a bunch of people have been throwing in interracial marriage, too, including many Democrats. And that's actually not right. And some people have been making snide comments about Justice Thomas saying, oh, I notice he didn't include interracial marriage because he's in an interracial marriage, and therefore that's not up for consideration. No, it's not really that reason. The reason is that the interracial marriage decision was based on the Equal Protection Clause, not on what some 
scholars consider to be a dubious judicial philosophy of substantive due process. So it's a substantive due process series of cases that are potentially at risk and might be overturned, but not the Equal Protection Clause cases. Okay, so with that little note, I will go to Bill Galston. Well, first, a footnote to the previous conversation. My hypothesis is that the interaction between the contraception issue and the abortion issue may help explain why so many more Republicans in the House had cold feet about the wording of the contraception legislation. Well, Bill, was there something in the wording that would have included abortifacients? Is that what it was about? I have not read it, but a couple of Republicans have remarked that it was, quote, poorly drafted. And they always say that. No, yeah. well, but no, but Bill is right that the most draconian pro-life people believe that a whole range of contraception techniques are actually abortifacients. The thing that's troubling is that really is the outward fringe of even the pro-life movement, which is itself kind of defined as one of kind of a fringy part of public opinion. So the fact that so many Republicans could have been beholden to that sliver of public opinion is still troubling to me, at least. Yep. yep. Okay. I can be brisk now because both my highlight and my low light have already been mentioned. <laughs> my highlight, and sorry to sound like a broken record, is the extraordinary success that the Ukrainians have scored with advanced weaponry such that the Russians now officially and on the record are having to acknowledge that and respond to it. My low light is what happened in my home state of Maryland with the nomination of someone who's had good things to say about QAnon, conspiracy theories, etc., as the Republican candidate for governor of Maryland. This is particularly bad news because of what it says about the state of the Republican Party around the country. And I conclude from what happened in the state of Maryland, two things. First of all, this is now Donald Trump's Republican Party. Whatever happens to Donald Trump, the man, Trumpism is now the dominant tendency in the Republican Party. And secondly, the fact that Larry Hogan, who will probably run for president, I know for a fact that he's seriously considering it, was unable to pass the mantle of his kind of Republican governance onto his successor suggests that the Hogan wing, if I can put it that way, of the Republican Party is even weaker than I might have supposed previously. Might not be a wing. It might be a feather. Yeah, well. <laughs> uh, which is very sad, I agree. Okay. Well, I would like to cite something that is good news, I suppose a highlight. The um, Biden administration finally has responded to the pleas from Democratic members of Congress who are in swing districts and who are therefore the most endangered species in a midterm, they have been pleading for action on crime. And the administration has now announced a proposal, which the president who just came down with COVID and we wish him a speedy recovery, was going to make a big announcement about this, uh, but I, I, he has to postpone it. But in any case, he's going to spend I, between 32 and 37 billion. I've seen different numbers to hire more cops 
and crack down on gun trafficking. Now, hiring more cops is a tried and true democratic approach to the crime problem. It was done under the Clinton administration, and it was wildly popular and arguably successful. And so all hail the Biden administration for doing something that will be A, popular, B, possibly even successful at its intended purpose, and C, helpful to endangered Democrats in borderline districts so that they have something to talk about in the fall. And with that, I would like to thank our special guest, Tom Nichols, for joining us. It's always great to have you, Tom. John Ward, thank you so much for sitting in this week. Thank our listeners for always being there. I want to thank our producer, Katie Cooper, and our sound engineer, Joe Armstrong, and all of you for all your comments and questions. So we will return next week as every week. 